Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Patients with acute and acute and chronic liver failure are at high risk of developing critical illness. The unique pathophysiology of liver disease related to critical illness presents a series of challenges to clinicians. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss highlights of the guidelines for the management of adult acute and acute and chronic liver failure in the ICU, neurology, peritransplant medicine, infectious disease, and gastroenterology considerations. This guideline was released earlier this year and was produced by a panel of 29 members with expertise in aspects of care of the critically ill patient with liver failure and or the methodology of EBM guideline development. We will focus on recommendations for management of acute and chronic liver failure patients in the general ICU setting. Our guest today is Dr. Rahul Nanchal. Dr. Nanchal is a practicing critical care physician with an interest in liver disease. He is a professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Dr. Nanshaw is a recognized clinician, educator, and has a long list of publications. He is the lead author and co-chair of the Guideline for the Management of Adult, Acute, and Acute on Chronic Liver Failure in the ICU that we will discuss today. In the previous episode of the podcast, we discussed the first part of these guidelines, which focused on the management of cardiovascular, endocrine, hematologic, pulmonary, and renal considerations, that podcast and the, the paper will be referenced in the show notes. Rahul, welcome back to Critical Matters. Thanks, Sergio. Thanks for having me. Well, as we were saying, um, acute and chronic liver failure, a very important aspect uh, of daily practice in ICUs all over the country and the world, very common presentation. And uh, we were talking that you had embarked on these uh, guidelines some time ago. We had an opportunity to discuss the first part of the guidelines, and today we're going to discuss uh, the second part of the guidelines that were recently published in Critical Care Medicine. So as a starting point, maybe we can refresh our audience's memory on some of the important definitions, and I wanted you to define acute liver failure, chronic liver failure, and then acute on chronic liver failure. Uh, sure, you know, and again, you know, thanks for having me, Sir, uh, Sergio. For the purposes of the guideline, uh, I think we defined acute liver failure. So the the, the definition of acute liver failure uh, was sort of a traditional definition, uh, the onset of uh, synthetic liver dysfunction and hepatic encephalopathy within 26 weeks weeks of an acute insult to a previously healthy liver so you know that's a that's an important distinction point i think between acute liver failure and the and chronic liver failure and uh, acute and chronic liver failure that acute liver failure refers to uh, an insult and liver dysfunction and hepatic encephalopathy occurring in a previously healthy liver now chronic the chronic liver failure is uh, and this is something that you know i think most of us recognize as cirrhosis uh, it, it's if you really have to define it it's just probably progressive uh, liver dysfunction that you know lasts more than six months and acute on chronic liver failure which is sort of a newer entity and uh, a lot's been sort of um, uh, recognized about this ent entity over the past decade, uh, the definition of acute on chronic liver failure is uh, something acute that happens or acutely decompensated chronic liver disease associated with organ failure 
which has a very high short term mortality so i think you know those are that's it's 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 good you asked this question because you know this uh, very distinct entities and you know very distinct pathophysiology and although some of the management aspects may overlap but you know definitions are important I agree, and I think it's always a good starting point. Now, you did mention, Rahul, that acute and chronic liver failure is a more novel concept that we're recognizing, yet is it, it is probably been around in our ICUs for some time. And I would say for most intensivists in general, medical and medical surgical ICUs, it might be the more common presentation that we deal with, right, in the ICU at least. Could you give us a little bit more insight into some uh, of, the, of the epidemiology and some of the problems that might lead acute and chronic liver failure patients to the ICU. And also, if you could comment on some of the misconceptions that intensivists might have about these patients. Yeah, sure. You know, and, and you're exactly like, uh, right, Sergio. I think uh, acute, and liver, acute and chronic liver failure has been around for as long as intensive care units have been around. I think we've known about this entity, you know, for a long, long time or, you know, or dealt with it in one way, shape, form or the other. But uh, recognizing it and defining it and, you know, and, and sort of putting definitions around it and uh, some structure around, around it has uh, occurred previously. And, you uh, and believe it or not, there are you know three major definitions for the for acute and chronic liver failure. It's not important to get into you know what the nuances of the definitions are, but uh, you know there there is an Asia Pacific definition, there is a European definition, and then there is a North American definition, and there are slightly different. But 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 I think organ failure is what is common amongst all of these definitions, and. <clears throat> Now, uh, normally, we think of cirrhosis as, you know, decompensated cirrhosis in, in terms of, you know, as if someone has a variceal bleed or someone has, you know, large ascites or someone has hepatic encephalopathy. Now you start putting organ failure on top of it, you know, kidney failure and respiratory failure and shock, you know, those are those are sort of uh, the, the, the hallmarks of acute and chronic liver failure. And so this is a syndrome which is uh, sort of associated with very, very high mortality. The epidemiology and the so the the, the causes of uh, acute and chronic liver failure are uh, are manifold. Uh, the most common cause of acute and chronic liver failure is an infection that develops in the background of cirrhosis or chronic liver disease. Uh, the second most common cause is um, alcoholic hepatitis or alcohol intake. Uh, in uh, probably in the east, uh, viral infections or reactivation of hepatitis B is important. Variceal bleed is another trigger. So there, there is some inciting event uh, that leads to acute deterioration of liver function, and then then you know and then uh, organ failure. Uh, what is important to note is that I think uh, in about 30% of cases the cause is never recognized. You know people just have. Uh, you know, deterioration of liver function, deterioration of, uh, of, of their chronic liver disease and uh, associated organ failures. Uh, I think the the misconceptions uh, surrounding acute and liver, chronic liver failure is that I, I think a lot of intensivists, you know, sort of give up and say that that, that this uh, that these things have very poor prognosis. Well, that is true. Uh, what is also true is that if appropriately managed and given the appropriate ICU support, up to 20% of people with ACLF3, that's acute and chronic liver failure grade three, which is the severest form of acute and acute and chronic liver failure, can actually reverse their grade or even completely resolve their acute and chronic liver failure. So it's it's really important that people recognize these early, people recognize the organ failures early, and uh, and they support these patients in an uh, in a, in an appropriate fashion. 
Uh, what is also true is that if you look at uh, one of the most recent studies, uh, controlled for severity of illness, you know, people with acute and chronic liver failure had no worse outcomes than just general ICU, uh, ICU patients. And I think the third thing is that uh, I think people should be thinking about referral to a liver transplant center early because they these people actually have very high uh, mortality within 30 days, especially if you're ACLF grade two or ACLF grade three. Uh, and li with liver transplantation, you know, the, the people do, you know, people actually do pretty well, but the, but the uh, sort of window for liver trans transplantation is very, very short and very, very narrow, very high weightless mortality. And so uh, people, you know, should A, recognize this, this uh, entity early and B, think about, you know, sort of uh, uh, referral to our liver transplantation soon. A center for liver transplantation so i hope that answers your question sergio absolutely and i think that these are all important um, aspects because like you said the recognition of patients with cirrhosis who are admitted to the icu um, with some decompensation or acute problem is very common and i think the recognition of organ failure in any form would put them in that acute on chronic liver failure category and like you said understanding that these patients have a very high mortality yet um, it's not futile to, to care for them. And yeah. uh, if we can get them uh, for the proper candidates early to a transplant center, that might actually be a, not only a life-saving, but uh, might, might change their trajectory in a very dramatic way. So important for all of us, even when we don't have a transplant uh, program in our, in our hospital, to refer them to the right place. So those, are, I, I think, are excellent points uh, for, our, for our audience to keep in mind. Now, the genesis, Rahul, for, for our conversation today, obviously, is the topic of acute and chronic liver failure, and it's really going to be developed around the context of the guidelines that you helped develop. Could you just tell us at a very high level um, the overview of this guideline process? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think the, uh, you know, for, firstly, the Society of Critical Care Medicine was kind enough to uh, think that this topic was, uh, you know, was relevant and allowed us to develop the, these guidelines. So the co-chairs were, uh, which, was, which were me and Ram, were actually chosen by the, by the society. Uh, after that, uh, we chose panel members that were that had expertise in a variety of areas, uh, you know, including cardiovascular disease, including and and each of them had had a specific interest in uh, in liver disease, uh, and so we you know we had a dietitian, we had an APP, we uh, you know we chose people you know with expertise in ID, with gastroenterology, hepatology, uh, and so on and so forth, and then we divided these uh, these experts into you know various groups for the purposes of this part of the guidelines, which we had four groups, and then uh, in conjunction with the, and each group had a group leader, and in conjunction with the group leader, we formulated questions that we thought would be important to clinicians as well as patients, uh, prioritize some outcomes, and then uh, did a review of the literature, uh, a systematic review of the literature, and then use the grade process to sort of formulate recommendations, and then finally used uh, you know, the uh, evidence to decision framework uh, to sort of uh, finalize these recommendations for, you know, for, for the audiences. Perfect. And, and obviously, there's a lot of recommendations that have come up from the guidelines published in the two separate papers. And we'll have links to all of these in the, in the show notes. But one of the things that <clears throat> that I wanted you to explain a little bit is the implications of the strength of recommendation, right? So um, there are some that have strong and some that are conditional recommendations. And I think that is worded with a we recommend versus we suggest. What does that mean at the patient, the clinician, and maybe even at more of a um, society level? 
Uh, yeah, sure. Great question, Sergio. So uh, these, you know, as I had mentioned, that these uh, recommendations were uh, keeping in line with the GRADE methodology and the uh, language that is suggested by GRADE. So if something is a strong re recommendation, we use the language we recommend. If something is a conditional recommendation, we use the language we suggest. And the differences between, uh, and of course, you know, a strong recommendations, I, I think has three components to it. You know, it, it has a patient component, it has a clinician component, and it has, like you said, a society or a policymaker component. And the patient component is that if we recommend, if we are recommending something, then most patients in this situation, in that particular situation, uh, would want you know, what we recommended. And uh, it, it doesn't mean that all of them would, but the people who would not would be actually a very, very small proportion. From a clinician perspective, when we make a strong recommendation, we are saying that, you know, most cl clinicians would agree that this would, uh, that uh, that patients should receive what we have recommended. And uh, adherence to this uh, recommendation could be used as a performance, as a quality criterion or as a performance indicator. And from a policymaker perspective or from a society societal perspective, uh, the recommendation could be adapted, you know, as a policy in most situations, including the use of, you know, uh, performance indicators and so on and so forth. Uh, and for a very strong recommendations, clearly the uh, benefits outweigh whatever little risks uh, you know the recommendation has. For a conditional recommendation, it is not as clear. So for a conditional conditional recommendation, I think for patients, a majority of this uh, majority of people would probably want the recommendation, but you know it is possible that you know quite a few don't. Uh, from a clinician pers perspective, uh, clinicians are. You know, many clinicians would agree that you know this is the course of action, but the different choices are likely for different circumstances, and they would say that this recommendation should you know be tailored to the individual patient circumstance or perspective, and this should include patient preferences. Not that you know recommendation should ever not include patient and, and you know and family values, but I think in conditional recommendations it's a little more that you know we take into account what the patient says, what the family says, and and whatnot, and you know, and we are a little bit more, uh, how should I put it? We are a little bit more iffy about, you know, about it. And from a policymaker perspective, you know, it is hard to make, you know, sort of a performance indicator or it is hard, you know, the, the, it is it, so making a performance indicator of, you know, surrounding the recommendation would require considerable deba debate from a variety of stakeholders. And then, and in, in this sort of conditional recommendation, you know, we, the the, the clinicians and the and everyone sort of agrees that perhaps the uh, although the the uh, benefits may outweigh the benefits but it is less clearer than a strong recommendation perfect so let's dive into the actual recommendations and talk about how to treat these patients and i want to start with uh, infectious diseases so this is one of the the most common reasons uh, why patients with acute and chronic liver failure may, may end up in the in the ICU or a common occurrence. But um, another um, common cause that brings patients to the ICU in this uh, subset is gastrointestinal bleeding or bleeding associated with portal hypertension complications. Could you tell us about the use of antibiotic prophylaxis in these patients? Uh, 
Yeah, I think this is, uh, you know, just to take a step back, Sergio, we, uh, a lot of recommendations in this guideline were conditions were conditional just because, uh, or, you know, there were several areas where we couldn't make rec recommendations because either the data was indirect or we just didn't have, uh, you know, enough good quality data, you know, for, the, for as, as you very well know, that patients with liver disease are, uh, or at least advanced liver disease are frequently excluded from our randomized controlled trials of critically ill patients. So, it, you know, it is sort of hard to find good quality data in people with uh, with chronic, with acute liver failure or acute on chronic liver failure. But this was one of the areas where we, where we were able to issue a strong recommend, recommendation uh, for anti antibiotic prophylaxis after gastrointestinal bleeding. And I think, I, like many of our audience knows, it's common practice to give uh, give antibiotic prophylaxis after GI bleeding, and the reason is that uh, that there are the, in large meta-analysis, and even when we looked at all of the evidence and did our own meta-analysis, not only was um, uh, not only was the occurrence of infection, the occurrence of SPP, the occurrence of bacteremia reduced, but even mortality was reduced when you gave antibiotic prophylaxis after uh, GI bleed. The mortality was likely reduced because you know the because of the reduction of infections, uh, but they were. Uh, uh, you know, we found pretty strong evidence and pretty good evidence that, uh, that, that you know, that this is one of the things that should, uh, you know, always be done. And like you mentioned, this is one of the strong uh, recommendations based on the available evidence. So important for, for our clinicians to remember, if you admit somebody with an upper GI bleed and they're a chronic liver failure, acute and chronic liver failure, you should start prophylactic antibiotics. And would ceftriaxone be appropriate? Is that kind of what we yeah. recommend these days? Perfect. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I think you know for for a, for prophylaxis of a GI bleed, I think a third generation cephalo you know cephalosporin ceftriaxone would you know absolutely be appropriate. Cefotaxime, I think, would be an you know, equally good choice. Perfect. So the other uh, topic that I I believe is important in infectious disease in the context of our discussion is uh, obviously SPP, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, another common um, reason why patients might end up under our care. In the, uh, in the acute and chronic liver failure. Before we go into some of the recommendations, Rahul, could you just give us a little bit more of a general overview of SPP, kind of how does it usually present, when we should suspect it, and how do you confirm the diagnosis? I, you know, um, obviously, Sergio, if, uh, you know, someone comes in and says, someone with liver disease come with anastitis comes in and says, I have abdominal pain and I have a fever and, you know, and things of that nature, it is sort of yes, you know, they likely have SPP. But in my practice, at least what I have found is that the, the presentation of SPP is actually so varied that it is probably just, you know, people, a person comes in sick and they have ascites, it is, you know, probably just a, a very wise to at least get a diagnostic tap and rule out SPP. So the, the way to, you know, do this is just, you know, send a few cc's of yeah, and it does not have to be a therapeutic tap. You know, it's very easily done at the bedside. Just a, you know, a few cc's of fluid sent for cell count and culture. And, uh, you know, obviously the diagnosis of SPP rests on, uh, you know, finding more than 250 neutrophils uh, in a, uh, uh, a, a, you know, in a sample of the acidic fluid. And uh, at the same time, starting, you know, sort of broad spectrum antibiotics. And so this is such a, I think it, it is so common and so commonly missed and the presentations are so varied that it can be easily missed 
uh, I, I think it probably behooves us, especially if people are you know ill and near and require uh, admission to the ICU, that a diagnostic sort of uh, tap be done when when you don't know what's going on or you know presentations are are less clear or you know someone presents with you know confusion or hepatic encephalopathy or things of that nature and you're looking for a trigger, uh, a diagnostic paracentesis should be performed. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Rahul. That really very insidious in his presentation, yeah. and that we should have a super high index of suspicion. Anybody who's presenting with history of chronic liver disease, who is critically ill, maybe there's a unclear or non-characteristic symptoms. But also important to mention, like you you were talking earlier, that somebody might present with a GI bleed and then develop a SPP within yeah. the hospital. So again, to, to maintain that level of vigilance. We we talked. We'll talk about 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 therapy. But the first recommendation that I, I think is based really on data that is mostly obtained from non-serotic and non-acute and chronic liver failure patients relates to the timing of antibiotics for SPP and for SPP and septic shock. Any comments there? Yeah, I, I think uh, you know. Uh, again, I, as you mentioned, there is actually not a whole lot of data that pertains specifically to it. At least, not prospective randomized control data that you know prospective. There, there have been some uh, retrospective ob- observational studies, but there is nothing that actually pertains specifically to acute liver disease. However, there is so much data from you know just general septic shock, general sepsis, and things of that nature, and uh, also knowing that. Uh, you know the patients with with liver disease. They have a unique pathophysiology. They are vasodilated at baseline and probably have limited cardiopulmonary reserve. And, uh, and infections are the major cause of acute on chronic liver failure. And that you know as organ failure progresses, like at, like with any other critical illness, you know you, short-term mortality actually rises exponentially. So as you go from grade one to grade two to grade, grade three, ACLF. You know, there is exponential rise in mortality. I think the timing of antibiotics and the control of infection is is so important. And so, uh, and that's why we we sort of you know suggested. You know, of course, the the recommendation was conditional, and the quality of evidence was low because you know of a variety of reasons. You know, a there is no direct evidence. You know, b uh, uh, the evidence that is there is all retrospective. We had to issue a conditional recommendation, so we did suggest that the appropriate antibiotics are started as soon as possible after recognition and ideally within one hour of onset of shock in critically ill patients with, uh, uh, with in critically ill ACLF patients with SVP. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I also think that, you know, this also pertains probably, you know, we have a lot, the, most of the data is for SVP, but we have probably for other infections as well that if you recognize an infection, uh, start antibiotics as soon as possible. And, uh, and you know, if you have shock absolutely within one hour, if starting antibiotics as soon as possible, probably, you know, in a lot of cases will prevent either ACLF or the progression of ACLF if you're an ACLF grade one or so on and so forth. And so those are some of our recommendations for, you know, the timing of antibiotics and SVP and septic shock. Perfect. Now, in terms of, uh, of the timing, obviously, sooner is always better, and that is going to be even more uh, important for critically ill patients in septic shock. What about the choice of antibiotics? So we talked about ceftriaxone as a good prophylactic, and that historically was a starting point for SBP, but my understanding, uh, I'm reading the guidelines, is that maybe we need to think a little bit broader. Can you tell us what the recommendation is today? 
Yeah, I think we, you know, we did recommend that uh, we use broad-spectrum antibiotics for the initial management of SPP, and that ceftriaxone or a third-generation cephalosporin be reserved for low-risk community-acquired SPP. And so, the, you know, as you very well know, Sergio, the epidemiology of infections in general have changed uh, with the, you know, use, misuse, overuse of antibiotics and a variety of other factors, and that we more and more we are dealing with resistant infections, not only in, you know, especially if they are nosocomial healthcare associated or healthcare acquired, but also now in the community, we have been more and more, we have been dealing with resistant infections. And so, you know, our recommendation is probably to, you know, take into account risk factors for resistant infections, A, B, where you acquired the infection, you know, whether you acquired it in the hospital or you acquired it in the community, whether you've been exposed to antibiotics before or not, whether you have other risk factors for multidrug resistant pathogens, uh, in, and, you know, what your local sort of uh, antibiogram and what your local, uh, if especially if you're in the hospital, what your, you know, what your local microbiome biological structure looks like before you decide on the choice of antibiotics. And, you know, people should be cognizant that there are, you know, the prevalence of ESBLs in organisms like MRSA or BRE is, you know, growing in prevalence. And, it, and you know, again, you know, like I had mentioned before, these people have little reserve and, you know, once acute and infections are the main cause of, uh, and especially SPP, the main cause of, one of the main causes of ACLF uh, and progression of ACLF, uh, I think, you know, all of these factors should be taken into account uh, when initiating antibiotic therapy. The choice of third-generation cephalosporin should be reserved for, you know, absolutely low-risk patients. Perfect. Another area that applies directly to SVP uh, is the use of albumin. So albumin, obviously, has been um, studied and debated in, uh, as a fluoricitation for sepsis and uh, um, currently is not part of the standard just uh, based on the available evidence. But uh, your recommendations and the guideline uh, do suggest that or, or recommend that the use of albumin in SPP specifically has value. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, Rahul, please? Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, there is a inherent vasodilated and, you know, sort of immune dysfunctional state of, uh, of cirrhosis. And other than acting as a, a volume expander, I think albumin has a lot of other immunomodulatory, you know, sort of, and, and, and a lot of other effects that are probably beneficial for patients in cirrhosis. And, and when we uh, looked at the data from, you know, I think what there, there, were, there, there were four randomized controlled trials, of course, you know, the, the largest of them was published in the New, New England Journal of Medicine, I think in 1998 now. Uh, and the, and all of these four trials, when uh, when people were given albumin, you know, it was associated with a reduction in the odds of mortality, in the reduction of renal failure, and you know, in general, it, it was found to be very very beneficial. And uh, you know, and we did even in in our rationales, we did even as far uh, we went as far as to say that if once a diagnosis of SP, 
SPP has been established, uh, you should probably just give albumin just because of the inherent vasodilated state of uh, liver disease, even if you know you don't really, if, if it is not, even if the need for volume resuscitation is not obvious, uh, just to increase the circulating, you know, all of these people have decreased effective arterial circulating volume just to increase that, and maybe perhaps even to stave off or prevent people going into acute on chronic liver failure. So again, you know, very important. I think clinicians should recognize, uh, you know, that they should give, as soon as, you know, they diagnose SPP, uh, albumin should be given. What's the recommendation in terms of the dosing? Uh, so I, I think the, the the dose, the first dose, typical initial dose is one and a half grams. So the first day is one and a half grams per kg of 25% albumin. And that, that I think, important to emphasize, Rahul, is not necessarily for resuscitation. It's just basically we're treating the SPP with that dose of albumin, regardless. Exactly. And would you would you be more inclined to use albumin as you resuscitate patients with SPP later as well? Yeah, I, I think you know my practice is to. Uh, give albumin for resuscitation. Uh, this is one of the, I think, one of the very few disease states that you know I prefer to give uh, 25% albumin for resuscitation. Perfect. What about um, you? You mentioned earlier uh, the diagnostic uh, paracentesis to make the diagnosis of SPP. What's the role of a large volume paracentesis in SPP? And if you could define what a large volume paracentesis is considered. Uh, sure, I, I think uh, so, uh, Sergio, the definition of a large volume SPP is uh, removal of more than four liters of acidic fluid. And, uh, you know, although uh, the, there, there is there is a lot of debate over whether a, la a large volume uh, paracentesis should be performed or should not be performed uh, in, in people with SPP. As you very well know, uh, you know, large volume paracentesis can induce uh, paracentesis-associated circulatory dysfunction, low blood pressure, shock, uh, and, and things of that nature, which can eventually lead to renal impairment uh, and, you know, worsening of acute and chronic liver failure. Uh, we did not actually find any evidence to suggest that, you know, this should be performed. So, so we recommended that, you know, uh, it is okay. So not to perform large volume paracentesis in patients with SPP, uh, unless there was, you know, an absolutely compelling reason for it, like, you know, intra-abdominal hypertension or things of that nature, uh, but rather to just, you know, do a diagnostic paracentesis. And I think that's an important distinction, right? If you yeah. have an indication such as, you have a documented intra-abdominal hypertension um, removing ascites will be um, therapeutic or will help treat that intra-abdominal hypertension that can also potentiate um, organ failure such as renal failure. Exactly, surgeon. Perfect. And uh, the last question uh, or topic uh, that I want to discuss within the SPP category was uh, the use of midodrine and telepressin for SPP. These medications have been utilized for paterrenal syndrome, but is this something you would start early, or what? What is the role for for midodrine and telepressin in S in SPP? So, Sergio, I, I, you know, in in short, I think uh, we we did not actually find. Uh, any evidence that in the absence of hepatorenal syndrome uh, that these uh, medications uh, would uh, 
uh, you know, would be helpful. So we actually recommended not to use these medications, either mitodrine or telrepressin, uh, for critically ill patients with ACLF. Uh, now, if people have have hepatorenal syndrome, uh, you know, I, I think that's a different entity, and it's a different, you know, that's a different, uh, that's a totally different uh, sort of animal. And uh, you know, as you very well know, these vasoconstrictors are sort of the cornerstone of treatment, uh, you know, of these uh, of that entity. But in the absence of that, they they should not be used. Perfect. So let's switch gears and talk about gastroenterology topics. And obviously, uh, these are uh, very relevant to these patients. Um, a lot of um, admissions to the ICU are related along, uh, along GI problems in, in patients with chronic liver disease developing acute on chronic liver failure. So the first uh, recommendation that I wanted you to give us a little bit more insight is the timing of endoscopy for acute on chronic liver failure ICU patients with known or suspected portal hypertensive bleeding. Yeah, sure. So, you know, interestingly enough, Sergio, there is actually very little data that, you know, guides this recommendation. The uh, American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases uh, recommends that endoscopic evaluation occur no later than 12 hours, uh, you know, of presentation of an acute variceal bleed. Uh, and uh, th there is a meta-analysis, which is, you know, uh, you know, basically retrospective ob observational studies and at, at very high risk of selection bias. Uh, but Physiologically, I think early endoscopy, especially in in a uh, in portal hypertensive bleeding, uh, makes a lot of sense, right? So, uh, you know, as you very well know, variceal bleeding is one of the triggers of acute and chronic liver failure, and if you delay endoscopy, you know that is. Uh, you know, the, you risk hemodynamic instability, more blood transfusions, more portal hypertension, more bleeding. Uh, and so, and, you know, considering all of these things, considering the, you know, physiological effects of, you know, early endoscopy and, you know, what we would be preventing, we actually said that we recommended that, uh, and this was a best practice statement uh, and not a, uh, you know, not a strong or conditional recommendation because of, you know, because of what I have told you. And so we recommended that, you know, EGD or, or endoscopy be performed no later than 12 hours in critically ill patients with ACLF and, you know, who have uh, portal hypertensive bleeding. And, and like you mentioned, this is a best practice statement, mostly because there was a strong sentiment on the, the guideline panel that this is important, yet obviously it's something that has not been or may be hard to study in randomized trials, correct? Exactly, exactly, Sergio. And, and I think it's an important uh, recommendation because... For most uh, of our audience, we're not going. Uh, the intensivists are not doing the endoscopy, so making sure that we're all on the same page in terms of what would be considered a best practice window for these patients to have an intervention, I think uh, twelve hours is obviously uh, valuable, right? You don't have to come yeah. right now, but within twelve hours, this patient should be evaluated with endoscopy. Exactly, and especially given the fact that, you know, general GI bleeding, you know, most people will say, why, well, you know, within the first 24 hours is, uh, you know, is okay, but, you know, this is a little different than, you know, just uh, uh, general GI bleeds or, you know, general upper GI bleeds, where a lot of bleeding, you know, cessates after you give them a proton pump inhibitor, you know, this is not the case with acute portal hypertension, you know, hypertensive bleeding. Perfect. And you mentioned the PPI. And we obviously use this a lot in non-liver patients for upper GI bleeds and 
there's been demonstrated a beneficial effects of using PPIs and decreasing re-bleeding. What's the role of proton inhibitors in portal hypertensive bleeding? You know, again, this was uh, uh, this was a recommendation where we did have some data, but you know, at, at least in liver disease, uh, as you very well know, again, you know, PPIs can have some adverse effects as well, uh, especially a dysbiosis effects on the microbiome, uh, increased risk of SVP, and you know, in sort of hepatic encephalopathy. But uh, we felt that when people had, you know, bleeding, acid expression was uh, really, really important, uh, especially in any kind, even with portal hypertensive bleeding, uh, because once you, you know, treat portal hypertensive bleeding, you know, creating that, uh, uh, you know, suppressing acid in terms of healing uh, and in terms of, uh, you know, uh, other beneficial effects that were extrapolated from, you know, non uh, sort of liver disease patient trials uh, were important enough for us to issue a strong recommendation to say that you know we should uh, use proton pump inhibitors with in patients with uh, portal hypertensive bleeding. Perfect. And what about the use of uh, other medications such as uh, oxytocin or somatostatin analogs in portal hypertensive bleeding? Yeah, again, that, that that's you know that's so those those so somatostatin and and this thing was you know this is where. Uh, we have data with uh, uh, with liver disease. You, you know, obviously, uh, you can use a somatostatin analog or telrepressin. Tel uh, until recently, telrepressin was not available in the United States. It's just become available. Uh, but uh, the uh, not only uh, uh, the, although the effect on rebleeding is a little unclear, but the use of octreotide or somatostatin analogs is actually associated with a mortality benefit in uh, in portal hypertensive bleeding after you know someone has uh, performed banding or sclerotherapy, and this is one of the pharmacological agents which is which is helpful and should be used. And this is one of the strong recommendations in the document. I'm a big believer in uh, in making sure that patients um, always get um, treatments that we consider to be standard of care, best practice, or based on evidence. And I always say that for many diseases, the first three or four steps should be the same for everybody. And then you start looking, okay, how do they respond? What's different about this patient? And maybe go a little bit deeper or do different things. But it sounds from our discussion so far, for the common uh, presentation of a GI bleed in a patient with acute and chronic liver failure, which we presume as a portal hypertensive um, origin, they should get a um, prophylactic antibiotic. They should get an endoscopy within the 12 hours of arrival. They should uh, get a, a PPI, and they should probably be treated with octreotide or telepressin if you have that available. Would that be fair? Yes, that, that is absolutely true, uh, Sergio, and that you've hit the nail on the head. You know, that is exactly, like you said, you know, we these are standard of care things. So this is what, this is, uh, is something that I do for every patient that presents with a portal hypertensive pain. So once you've, intim you've implemented all of those and uh, um, the patient has a re-bleed, what's the next step? Do you re-endoscope or do you talk about tips? I, I think, you know, Practices, uh, Sergio, to tell you the truth, real-world practices likely differ from, uh, you know, from place to place. Uh, but there is, I, I think there is, you know, sort of, uh, you know, pretty good evidence that re-bleeding, if, if patients re-bleed despite their 
uh, initial attempt at uh, banding and uh, and sclerotherapy and when they have received all of the all of the things that we talked about that strong consideration should be given to tips and in fact you know there is a uh, there is a trial of, uh, where you know although it is very small that uh, if you do tips early uh, you know one year outcomes in terms of mortality and you know in terms of recurrence of rebleeding are much better uh, than tips so so in centers that have the expertise and there are experienced operators obviously you know the the performance of tips requires uh, access to an experienced operator and a, and a center with expertise if you have those uh, you know strong strong consideration should be given to tips obviously you know there are contraindications associated with tips so those have to be kept in mind however uh, in cases of rebleeding after good a good faith attempt at you know all of the initial things we talked about to control bleeding strong consideration should be given to the performance of tips perfect and the last topic i wanted to talk about uh, was neurology and uh, there's a lot of recommendations uh, regarding hepatic encephalopathy but what i wanted to start with was if you could differentiate for our clinicians the differences in broad terms, between hepatic encephalopathy in a patient with acute liver failure and hepatic encephalopathy in patients with acute on chronic liver failure? Yeah, sure. Uh, Sergio, a very important question, and I think very important for the audiences to know. So, you know, as we had mentioned in the uh, uh, you know, at the start of this uh, podcast, the definitions of acute liver failure. So, the acute liver failure, so liver insult occurring in a previously healthy or a normal liver, and you know, ammonia is central to the development of hepatic encephalopathy. And you know, so the brain has not in acute liver failure is not used to elevated ammonia levels. And so, uh, you know, what happens is that uh, you know people get encephalopathic very quickly. And uh, they might even develop cerebral edema associated with the uh, with the encephalopathy because of the uh, because of these high ammonia levels. This does not occur in ACLF. So the entity of hepatic encephalopathy is very different in acute on uh, entity of hepatic encephalopathy is very different in acute on chronic liver failure as it is in ALF. Secondly, all of the therapies that we use for uh, you know for uh, uh, for hepatic encephalopathy and control of uh, hepatic encephalopathy in chronic liver disease or ACLF do not work for ALF. And so the way to control hyperaminemia in ALF is to do plasmapheresis or you know or do continuous renal replacement therapy while you know the while usually the hyper the hepatic encephalopathy in acute on chronic liver failure is you know sort of treated with uh, lactulose and rifaximin and so on and so forth. You know, hopefully I, I sort of answer your question about the, you know, sort, sort of differences. So the brain in, uh, you know, in uh, because acute and, and chronic liver failure develops on pre-existing chronic liver disease, uh, the hepatic encephalopathy and, and, you know, is less associated with cerebral edema, usually does not develop and probably develops less slowly and progresses rather than, you know, rather than patients who have acute liver failure. Oh, absolutely. And I think you, you, you also mentioned uh, some of the therapeutic differences because the underlying pathophysiology is quite different. So even though we're calling both um, clinical syndromes hepatic encephalopathy, the process is very different and what kills patients might be very different. So without going too deep into the uh, acute liver failure, hepatic encephalopathy, yeah. uh, two, two recommendations that I noted um, that um, 
perhaps a little bit different of what was done some time ago, where the uh, the one for um, measuring uh, intracerebral pressure, uh, ICPs, and the use of targeted um, hypothermia to lower ICP, those seem to be much more uh, used or people are more enthusiastic about them before. But from what I understood, Rahul, the evidence that you looked at doesn't really support any of those. That is uh, that is exactly right. Uh, you know, uh, Sergio, the evidence doesn't support either the use of uh, of ICP monitors or of of hypothermia in acute liver failure. And what is very interesting is that as our knowledge of pathophysiology and uh, has grown, and as our uh, general management of ICU patients has gotten better. The incidence of cerebral edema has actually markedly declined in patients with, you know, acute liver failure. So hardly anyone, you know, very few patients actually develop. People might develop hepatic encephalopathy to some degree, but you know, they they rarely develop cerebral edema these days. And on the other hand, what was recommended as um, potential useful therapeutic interventions was, like you mentioned already, the use of plasmapheresis the use of continuous uh, renal replacement, and also the use of hypertonic saline, correct? Exactly, exactly, Sergio. Okay. So now that we, um, a little bit more about hepatic encephalopathy and acute and chronic liver failure, um, if you could just give us kind of like a, an overview uh, of how to suspect it, um, some tips and pearls uh, and first-line therapies on this topic, which is very common in the ICU. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, so... I, as you said, exceedingly common, Sergio. And, uh, you know, I, what I say is always look for a trigger for hepatic encephalopathy. Uh, lots of times, and like, as we have talked about before, it is SPP, and it can be very subtle. And so, you know, a person pre- presents with SPP and has ascites, you know, make sure you get the diagnostic tap. Uh, make sure you're looking for hypovolemia. Make sure you're looking for drugs. Make sure you're looking for you know other things that have uh, you know uh, other things that have happened to cause you know hypokalemia and and, and whatnot. You know other things that have co- caused that that have precipitated hepatic encephalopathy. You know the presentation is uh, again variable. You know people can present from anywhere to you know deep stuporous comas. Uh, you know that require intubation and mechanical ventilation because they can protect protect their airways. So just mild confusion and a little bit of asterisks. And the classification is actually called West Haven's classification. Uh, and what is important to, you know, I think what is important for our audience is to count as an organ failure across definitions, whether it is, uh, you know, the North American de- definition or whether uh, it is the European European definition. Uh, you know, one has to have grade three to grade four. Uh, hepatic encephalopathy. And so w- one of the you know most common presentations in people with acute and chronic liver failure or even just decompensated cirrhosis, uh, and you know I think looking for a precipitant, you know extremely important, removing or treating the precipitant, you know very important. Uh, and you know again, you know treating the hepatic encephalopathy yeah, very important. Any other um, comments? I, I know that there was re- recommendations on the use of rifaximine and polyethylene glycol? Yeah, sure. So I think the, uh, you know, the cornerstone of management is still uh, non-absorbable disaccharides, you know, and so lactulose remains the uh, cornerstone of management for, uh, for, uh, 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 for uh, hepatic encephalopathy. I think the addition of rifaximin as an uh, adjunct to 
to lactulose is very important you know especially if the if the hepatic encephalopathy is not resolving you know, it the combination of lactulose and rifaximin seems to be uh, seems to work much better and and may even have a mortality benefit uh, now the the addition of polyethylene glycol there are you know i think two trials which uh, use polyethylene glycol uh, in place of lactulose and so if you know but i would reserve it for people who do not tolerate you know lactulose or you know develop some bowel distension or things of that nature you know those are the people i think to give polyethylene glycol to you know remember that you know we are giving large volumes of polyethylene glycol so in people who can't there's always a risk of aspiration uh, with this but you know again a useful uh, adjunctive therapy if lactulose is not either not working or people are not you know sort of tolerating lactulose perfect Rahul, first, I just want to thank you for um, spearheading this uh, massive undertaking of really putting together these uh, these guidelines that uh, will have references to all the papers. I really encourage our audience to, to read the papers because the, the not only the recommendations are important, but also the, the discussion of the why and the literature behind them, which also for me was was a, a reminder of how hard it is to perform large randomized trials in a subpopulation as acute on chronic liver failure and acute liver failure patients and uh, how how much there's still to be studied uh, in terms of managing these patients, right? Uh, you're exactly right, Sergio. I, I think, uh, it, and it's, it, it's surprising, right? It is, we see it so commonly, yet there are so few randomized controlled trials and, you know, and there is a lot to be done and a lot to be studied. Is there anything else you want to add to the clinical topic before we, we move on to the closing part of the podcast, Rahul? Yeah, I, I think I would just, you know, probably for the audiences, just uh, maybe remind people that there is, uh, it is always, uh, you know, please uh, be cognizant that recognition is really important. And then, you know, referral to a center that has transplant capabilities at the right time is really important. Perfect. And you've been on the podcast before, so you know that we, we like to ask a couple of questions unrelated to the clinical topic to just uh, learn a little bit from the wisdom of our, of our guest. Would that be okay? Of course. So the first question relates to books. Are there any books that have influenced you or, or struck you recently or, gifts, uh, or books that you have gifted often to other people? Yeah, so, uh, you know, great question, Sergio. So, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Daniel Kahneman. And so I think the last time we talked, uh, you know, I said thinking fast and slow is, uh, has really, uh, you know, had really influenced me. Uh, th there's a new book of his called Noise, and, you know, which is about uh, why uh, the same people make different de different decisions given exactly the same circumstances and, and, you know, what we can do to avoid that. And especially important, and you know, for example, in our judiciary systems, and especially important in medicine, uh, you know, and whatnot. So I think you know, I have uh, you know, I have found his books to be particularly insightful and particularly uh, you know, very enlightening. And the books that I have gifted the most, and yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a armchair uh, quantum physicist, and so the the book that uh, the, there is a book by Carlo Rovelli called The Seven Brief Lessons of Physics. Uh, you know, that's another book that has you know really influenced me a lot, and that is that is the book that I've gifted the most. And the nice thing of the Rovelli book is that it's a short read, so <laughs> yes, it is. It's a perfect gift, and uh, yeah, we talked about this last time on thinking fast and slow, but I, I agree. I think. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, um, for those who don't know, a Nobel laureate, um, 
father of uh, behavioral economics and really of uh, studying how we think, right? And noise yeah. is a wonderful read. And like you said, very, very uh, applicable to what we do in medicine on a daily basis. So we will definitely link uh, both of these books. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, I've enjoyed both of them and have also gifted Carlo Rovelli books to, to others. Great. So the so second... What's that? You, you like quantum physics as well, I guess. I do. <laughs> okay, very nice. So the other book that that, that that I really enjoyed from Carlo Rovelli that's very new is last, I don't know if it's his last book, but it's a book called Anaximander and really talks about, about the first great scientist in Greek history. Yeah. And uh, it just shows you, I mean, uh, how much people have evolved in the way they think and uh, it's just a fascinating, fascinating uh, read. So we'll, yep. we'll, we'll, we'll reference all these in the show notes. Thanks for those yeah. recommendations. What do you believe to be true, Rahul, in medicine or life that most other people don't believe or don't behave like they believe? Uh, I don't know whether other people don't believe or don't behave like they believe, but I, I think I, uh, uh, you know, the, one of the things that, you know, again, it's influenced a lot by Daniel Kahneman and, you know, and, and people like him is the role of randomness in life and chance in life. I think we discount uh, the role of, you know, randomness in life. And, you know, people sort of tend to think that, you know, it, there is something special about, you know, a situation when it is all very random. And, you know, and as an example, if you take a thousand people and give them a coin and, uh, you know, ask them to to toss a coin, you'll probably find one person who tosses 10 heads in a row. Uh, or 10 tails in a row for that matter of fact. And, you know, that person was like, oh, wow, you know, uh, there is something special when it's just, you know, you're liable to find one person who who sort of, uh, you know, just by chance alone, who, who uh, tosses 10 heads in a row or 10 tails in a row. And, and I think it's a great, it's a great, uh, it's a great point also to, to bring back to medicine, right? So especially when you're looking at small numbers, yeah. uh, people try to put an explanation to everything. So if all of a sudden they're measuring the ratio of mechanical ventilation, compliance with sepsis bundles, mortality, whatever you want to call it in your ICU, and it goes up, the first the first thought, or it goes down, the first thought is people attach all sorts of explanations to why that happened. And the most likely reason is that it's just a random finding, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, Sergio, it is so so great that you, it's so important that you brought this up. So this, this reminds me of the... Uh, of Tversky and, uh, you know, uh, thought about the airline pilots in, in Israel. I don't, I don't know if you, you yes. know, if you sort of read that or not. Where, the regression to the uh, mean. Absolutely. Yes, regression yes. to the mean. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so what it, what it says, and I always, I always remind people because of the law of small numbers, that if your sepsis numbers look really bad this month, I almost always guarantee that without doing anything, they will look better next month. Exactly. And if they yes. looked very good this month, I can guarantee almost that they would look a little bit worse next month, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. And the last question or uh, is just related to what would you want every person listening to our podcast today to know? Uh, do you do you mind if I read out a uh, a quote that, you know, that I actually read in a uh, uh, in a book of physical exams. So we use the book of, you know, I, I trained in India for, you know, I went to medical school in India and we had used a book called Hutchinson's Clinical Methods. And, you know, and this was, this was, uh, uh, the book was 
I think it was first published, you know, 100 years ago or so, and you know, has now and has several editions later. You know, it's it's continued, but there was a quote in the book by Lord Hutchinson himself, which you know has influenced me quite a bit. And so I would like to read that out if that's okay. Please, please. Okay, so so the the quote said it's called the physician's prayer, and it it, it is it goes as follows: from inability to let well alone from too much zeal for the new and contempt for what is old from putting knowledge before wisdom science before art and cleverness before common sense from t- treating patients as cases and from making the cure of the disease more grievous than endurance of the same good lord deliver us i think it's a perfect place to stop i think very <laughs> wise words and i'm a big fan of old books rahul my grandfather used to tell me that old books are always great because only the old the good ones become old, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Rahul, always a pleasure to have you back uh, to discuss. I mean, topics that I know are very, you're very passionate about, but also, uh, like in this case, acute and chronic liver failure, a very relevant topic to our audience and to our practices. I look forward to, to having you back, and thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time with us today. Thanks, Sergio. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.